Welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast, a co-production of HB Litigation and Critical Legal Content, custom content for law firms and litigation service providers, and the newly formed VLEX Fastcase, your world of legal intelligence, and our friends at Law Street Media. I'm your host, Tom Hagee, litigation content producer, an enthusiast, and an average bongo player. Contact me if you have an idea for an episode. In addition to often being polite, I'm always looking for new twists on the law, whether it's a new regulation, legislation, or an important new opinion. Or it could be a development in the world that will test existing law, or anything you're dying to share with other litigators, organizations, or individuals. And if you like what you hear, give us a rating. That always helps. And now, here's today's episode. global supply chain. You've heard of it. It's been having a rough time of it in the past few years. You'll all remember the COVID-19 pandemic. That Yeah, that led to factory closures. Port congestion and shipping delays also caused a lot of labor shortages as many workers, yours truly included, were sick or had to quarantine. It was particularly intense when China enforced its zero COVID policy, locking down major cities that disrupted production and transportation and shipping. Speaking of China, the trade war between this Asian manufacturing powerhouse and the United States has put some kinks in the chain as businesses have been forced to shift their supply chains to other countries. The ongoing war in Ukraine following Russia's invasion disrupted the production and export of commodities like wheat, corn, and oil. It's also caused disruptions to the shipping industry as a lot of ships, uh, they divert to avoid the war zone. And you'll remember a couple of years ago when uh, there was a container ship called the Ever Given, when it ever got stuck in the Suez Canal for six days, that was March 2021, jamming the canal, a major shipping route between Europe and Asia. Yeah, that caused major disruptions. Not to be outdone, Mother Nature's added her hurdles, natural disasters like hurricanes and floods. And let's, let's throw fires in there and earthquakes while we're at it. They've also disrupted supply chains. With all these challenges... And, uh, you know, in disruptions, the global supply chain has drawn heightened scrutiny in the United States uh, for its impact on the economy, on the labor market, on the delivery of goods and services, and even national security. So what has the government done? Specifically, what's the Department of Justice done, the Federal Trade Commission? What have they had to say? Have they sufficiently addressed the issue? Do they have anything coming up that we ought to know about? Are we seeing disputes in the courts? How could supply chain and manufacturing companies limit their risk of being subject to government investigations? These are all good questions, and I have someone good to answer them. Jennifer M. Driscoll, counsel at Robinson Cole. She talked to me about recent developments in the manufacturing industry, supply chains, and their impact on marketplace competition. Jennifer focuses her practice on investigations, litigation, arbitration, mergers, and counseling. She has extensive experience in the medical devices, pharmaceutical, electronic components, and automotive industries, with particular knowledge of industries in Japan. She's an experienced commercial litigator. She defends corporations and individuals against alleged antitrust and anti-corruption claims, both civil and criminal. She's active in the ABA's section of antitrust law, where she serves as vice chair of the section's corporate counseling committee and vice chair to the section's U.S. Commons and Policy Committee during the 2022-2023 section year. Jennifer received her JD from the University of Pennsylvania School of Law, right down the street from our uh, studios. <laughs> okay. 
Our discussion is based on an article she wrote for the Journal of Emerging Issues in Litigation. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Now, here is my interview with Jennifer Driscoll of Robinson Cole. I hope you enjoy it. Jennifer Driscoll, thank you very much for talking with me about this today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Let's start with how the pandemic brought supply chain issues into the into the spotlight. What, what can you tell us about that? Before COVID, most consumers in the U.S. were accustomed to purchasing a good and either leaving the store with that item or an expectation that the good would arrive within a certain specified period of time. But COVID upended the way consumers shopped for everything from food to durable goods, such as furniture and appliances. Tom, you might remember all the pictures of empty shelves at grocery stores and the news clips talking about individuals who were stockpiling toilet paper. For some Americans, this was the first time they experienced scarcity. And the fact that some of the scarce items were personal protective equipment, such as masks and hand sanitizers, made the awareness of this scarcity more acute. Now that the pandemic has subsided, and because of the supply chain challenges that are still plaguing the United States, the log jams and the back orders, for example, President Biden and the government agencies have announced increases in enforcement. In February 2021, President Biden announced that the Department of Justice Antitrust Division would closely examine the companies and executives that may affect supply chain disruptions because of anti-competitive behavior. Then, in November 29, 2021, the FTC announced its own inquiry into the causes behind ongoing supply chain disruptions and how these disruptions are causing serious and ongoing hardships for consumers and harming competition in the U.S. economy. Nine companies, including Walmart, Amazon, and Tyson Foods received orders to file special reports within 45 days of receiving the FTC order that described, among other things, one, any disruptions that they experienced, two, the top 20 suppliers that had had the biggest impact on their business, and three, which disruptions had had the greatest impact on their business. In light of this, post-COVID, companies are reevaluating their own supply chains and looking at the different costs of energy, labor, and transportation, all of which could be contributing to the bottlenecks. So what was the overall impact on the supply chain uh, by the disruption caused by, uh, by the pandemic? And what are companies doing out there to mitigate the impact of disruptions like that? Ernst & Young, uh, they did a great study recently about how COVID impacted supply chains and how these companies can build resilience. In that study, ENY found that companies are considering investments in AI, robotic process automation, and training workers to use digital technologies in an effort to improve efficiency and respond to changes in the market. Why do you think the manufacturing industry has been particularly vulnerable? to regulators who want to curb anti-competitive practices? Commodities that are interchangeable, such as auto parts, LCD crystals and TVs, because they don't lack any distinguishing characteristics and aren't competing on service, there are three variables that contribute to manufacturers' profits on commodities. And those are cost, 
price, and output. And commodities have been a target of investigators because they have to compete on price rather than service or other differentiating uh, characteristics. The economic life cycle of a commodity, when you think about it, shows why the temptation to to collude with competitors can be high, even if an executive or a member of a sales team knows that it is a violation of antitrust law to do so. So let's go back to the example of TVs. Up until 2007, cathode ray TVs dominated the television market. And there wasn't an option or another choice if you wanted to purchase a television. That changed in 2007 when liquid crystal displays, LCD TVs, entered the market. All of a sudden, the price for the cathode rays plunged. And those manufacturers had to figure out a way to prop up uh, the profits and the market again. So those manufacturers and their executives and their sales staff engaged in a price-fixing conspiracy that lasted for several years and until somebody went into the DOJ and confessed the wrongdoing. And then the rest of the manufacturers, executives, sales staff who participated in the price-fixing conspiracy, you know, faced criminal prosecution. Eventually, uh, LCDs suffered the same fate as the cathode ray TVs, and they had their own price-fixing conspiracy, which resulted in criminal prosecution of executives, corporations, and sales staff. So for this reason, you can see how the economic life cycles give rise to this collusive activity. When prices are high and profits are good, Uh, executives don't have that impetus or motivation to price fix. It's when the market is in decline or dying altogether that an executive or sales staff might make a last-ditch effort to prop up the market or improve performance. Has government action been effective in curbing anti-competitive conduct in in manufacturing and in the supply chain? In the United States, it's been very successful. Starting in, I would say, the 1970s, 1980s, antitrust law started to become a known mainstream concept. But when enforcement picked up in the 1990s and 2000s, all American executives and sales staff were on notice that the antitrust division took this misconduct really seriously and was willing to prosecute executives and staff even if it meant large fines and jail time. And an antitrust violation is a felony conviction that has profound impact on your day-to-day activities once it's on your record. Once antitrust was a mainstream concept in U.S. business, the division set its sights on the European Union. And in the European Union, criminal prosecution was even more of a shock because although antitrust violations are illegal in the EU, administrative uh, issue and not a criminal issue. So executives who in the EU who previously thought only the corporation can get fined for misconduct suddenly found themselves in the crosshairs of the division, insisting that the companies, you know, give up these executives and they come to the United States to serve prison terms. 
the EU eventually got with the program, and then the division set its sights on Asia, Taiwan, and in particular, Japan. Japan had a very intense wave of enforcement in the auto parts industry starting in 2010 that lasted for almost 10 years. Corporations paid record fines and dozens of Japanese executives and sales staff went to prison in the United States. So now we're seeing the same awareness come about in Asia, but I think I would not consider antitrust enforcement a mainstream concept in Asia just yet. I think that we'll see some more investigations before it becomes like a known issue that's taught in business school that corporations, you know, infuse in their uh, company culture. I guess you'd agree that the uh, the major disruptions caused by the COVID pandemic helped really shine a spotlight on on supply chain issues and weaknesses and vulnerabilities. Absolutely, because a lot of the supply chain disruptions and log jams, you know, involve commodities that have traditionally been the target of enforcement. And also this emphasis, you know, the fact is that we are in a global economy and parts are coming in from all over the world and there's energy costs and transportation costs that need to be factored in. I would say that the U.S. enforcement agencies are taking a very holistic view. What could be the problem with the ongoing supply chain disruptions that I think most of us anticipated it would come to an end uh, once we stopped wearing masks and life started to go back to normal. Well, let's move into the labor markets. Uh, I don't think a lot of people associate uh, antitrust schemes and anti-competitive behavior with uh, with wages and, and employment agreements and things like that. Um, what can you tell us about about that and specifically about non-compete agreements and the impact that would come about from the complete uh, complete ban on non-compete agreements. Tom, you've, you've kind of hit the nail on the head. Not everybody thinks of labor as involving competition or something that antitrust regulators would set their sights on. But for years, the antitrust division has been bringing civil suits. One of the most uh, known ones, at least within the antitrust community, has involved employees who work as nurses in certain metropolitan areas and how hospitals may have been involved in agreements not to poach each other's employees and keep the wages at a certain rate. So when employers impose or insert non-competes in a contract, here's the impact on workers. Workers have to stay in jobs that they don't like or that pay them less than they could uh, receive from another employer. This lack of labor mobility then distorts the market and it depresses wages by holding workers captive in a job they don't like. If a lot, when unemployment is high, wages will go down because there's like two, three job qualified job applicants for every opening. But when the labor market is tighter, that's when employers have to use wage increases to get those qualified applicants to even consider the position. 
So then in terms of high wage earners, the covenants not to compete or solicit their own contacts for business suppresses competition as well and removes a potential rival or competitor for several months to several years who could really, you know, potentially shake up the market by bringing in a rival or competitor business. But that said, you know, employers uh, often have legitimate reasons for wanting to enter covenants not to compete, uh, particularly where intellectual property and proprietary information is involved. If you have an employee who you invest a lot of resources in, who sees the company IP, who sees their research and development and innovation tracks, when that employee leaves, he or she takes the IP with him or her in the sense that whatever that employee has seen or heard or learned is still in the mind. Right. And is it difficult then to let go of an employee taking that body of knowledge and expertise to a competitive uh, threat? So chair of the FTC, uh, Lena Khan, has a proposed rule out there to to ban non-competes. Uh, she's very much against uh, very much against them for the the reasons we discussed. Uh, they're perceived as anti-competitive and terrible for workers. What can you tell us about that? Chair Khan is acting under the authority of an executive order that President Biden issued in 2021 ordering the federal agencies, but in particular the FTC and the Antitrust Division, to look at problems in the labor market for many of the reasons that I just mentioned, you know, in recognition of the fact that when people are stuck in a job that they don't like or pays less, that affects competition in the labor market. So the FTC has proposed a rule that would generally prohibit employers from using non-compete clauses. And the FTC's new rule would make it illegal for an employer to enter into or attempt to enter into a non-compete with a worker, to maintain a non-compete with a worker, and to represent to a worker that under certain circumstances, he or she is subject to a non-compete. The proposed rule would apply to independent contractors and anyone who works for an employer, whether paid or unpaid. So it's even capturing interns, arguably. And perhaps the most dramatic provision in the proposed rule is that it would require employers to rescind existing non-competes and actively inform workers that they are no longer in effect. What you say the prospects are for this proposed rule? Uh, what are What are some of the arguments for and against it. So the rule has generated a lot of controversy among the uh, lawyers um, in DC, at least. The first question is whether the FTC has authority to propose and implement such a rule, notwithstanding President Biden's executive order on labor. And even those who are in favor of some sort of non-compete, particularly with respect to low-wage workers, which you know I'll get to in a little bit, don't think that the FTC is the right agency to implement that. 
I will note that the FTC received so many comments during the period uh, for soliciting public comments, and that number was 27,000, that they've had to table further discussion of the rule uh, to 2024. You know, that's how hot an issue this is, not only for corporations, but for the average American who, you know, goes to work every day. Let's just assume that the FTC gets some or all of its proposed rule implemented. It's highly likely that somebody's going to sue over the rule and that it will make its way up to uh, the Court of Appeals and then ultimately the Supreme Court, because this is a very weighty issue that will have tremendous impact on how other agencies can operate under executive orders. And so you're going to have an interesting tension between an activist FTC that has been willing to challenge and even litigate cases, even if there's a sense that they might lose, and the conservative Supreme Court, which is, you know, shifting and reconsidering precedents that, you know, some considered to be well-established. So the activist FTC versus the uh, conservative Supreme Court, I think in this case, Chair Khan is outnumbered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she she could do all this hard work and the FTC could implement a rule that really makes sense, but lose the battle on grounds that the FTC does does not have authority and the Supreme Court agrees. Sometimes when the federal government doesn't push something through, we see the state's pick it up. And uh, so what are the states up to when it comes to non-competes? So a lot of states have banned non-competes or are looking to do so. But what's interesting is that 18 state attorney generals, including Illinois, New York, Rhode Island, and California, uh, submitted one of the public comments in support of the proposed rule that's been proposed by the FTC. Some of those states enacted non-compete legislation on their own, like California, and some have not. But the 18 states that signed the comment were in favor of a uniform national rule. And in doing so, they endorsed the FTC's definition of a non-compete clause, which is defined as a contractual term between an employer and a worker that typically blocks the worker from working for a competing employer or starting a competing business within a certain geographic area and for a certain period of time after the employer's or the employee's employment ends. The state AGs supported the FTC's decision not to impose an income threshold of any kind, meaning that non-competes would apply to high-wage earners and lower-wage earners. But the states did ask the FTC to clarify that the rule would not preempt state laws that provide substantially similar or greater protections and did not preclude concurrent enforcement of the laws by the state AGs. So California has had its non-compete law on the books for several years, and that did affect the way California structured its contract. But I think the more interesting example is Illinois and some of the other states that have applied the non-compete ban just to so-called lower wage earners, workers who earn money below a specified 
threshold that's in the statute. And the reasoning is that uh, let's say that there is a security guard and, you know, he's earning X number of dollars per hour. And within the same town or two towns over, he hears of another job that is X plus uh, in terms of wages. Why shouldn't that security guard be able to go and get that job and earn more money? The security guard is not seeing IP. The security guard does not have proprietary or confidential information that could hurt his employer's business. You know, for some workers, a non-compete is simply, it's unnecessarily punitive and it's stifling competition. This category of workers that, you know, aren't privy to, you know, the inner workings of a company that the argument on a ban for non-competes mm-hmm. makes the most yeah. sense. About the DOJ, are they using litigation to promote competition in labor markets? Yes. The DOJ has been bringing civil lawsuits in an attempt to address this issue. They have not been criminal lawsuits for the most part, but the DOJ was the agency that litigated what is known in the antitrust community as the nurses cases where they were looking at the wages in metropolitan Chicago and other areas to see if there was some sort of explicit or tacit collusion in setting the wages of nurses in the area. They've also started to look at other industries. You know, the poultry industry is another area that's gotten attention. And DOJ has suggested that more and more it will uh, consider criminal prosecution uh, for these types of uh, interferences mm-hmm. with the labor market. You mentioned nurses, and it made me think this is sort of a side issue, but when you look at pay disparity uh, based on gender, uh, and you might look at some jobs where maybe more women are suddenly in those occupations, say welding, you associate more stereotypically or typically is uh, something men do, but certainly there are women who weld. But then you look at nursing, which is, uh, you know, that's been dominated by women for years, you know, you can argue founded by women, right? Uh, but then when male nurses uh, come into the workforce, they start getting paid more than women to, to as much as 5000 or $10,000, I never really thought of it that way, but you're absolutely yeah, it right. It kind of wigged me out. I mean, you might think if gender is going to work to someone's advantage, it might be nursing because that's dominated by women. Okay, well, thanks for taking that side trip with me. Uh, back to supply chains. What can companies do to, to shore up the integrity of their supply chains and uh, reduce risk in the context of potential antitrust claims? I think the most important step that companies can take is to reinvigorate their antitrust compliance programs. It's very easy to put trading aside. It's It's an extra cost and investment when departments and corporations are already being stretched. But down the road, it does pay off because you are mitigating the risk now. Also, talking to employees about whether they know of other people within the organization or have heard of misconduct in the industry. 
you know, you have to approach the topic delicately in a very non-threatening manner. But if you discover that there is a problem within the company, in addition to remediating it, you can also self-report to the antitrust division and get what's called leniency, where in exchange for self-reporting and, you know, in the process turning in uh, your competitors and, you know, colluders, you are for the most part um, exempt from criminal fines and most executives do not face uh, mm-hmm. criminal consequences okay. either. What do you see for the future? Do you see regulators continuing to clamp down on anti-competitive behavior in, in manufacturing? Yes, I do. And I don't think that manufacturers should be lulled into complacency by the fact that the pandemic is behind us and argue, you know, hopefully uh, the worst is behind us. There's a statute of limitations uh, for antitrust violations. That's four years after the date of conduct or after the date of the discovery of the conduct, whichever is longer. So you could think that you're uh, safe and you're out of the danger zone and that, you know, what you did was just a blip on the radar screen and now things have gone back to normal. But when, when that misconduct comes to light, even if it's several years down the road, the division still has that jurisdictional hook because of the fact that the statute of limitations is triggered when the conduct is discovered. Well, Jennifer Driscoll, thank you very much for speaking with me about this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That concludes this episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast, a co-production of HB Litigation, Critical Legal Content, VLEX Fastcase, and our friends at Lost Media. I'm Tom Hagee, your host, which would explain why I'm talking. Please feel free to reach out to me if you have ideas for a future episode, and don't hesitate to share this with clients, colleagues, friends, animals you may have left at home, teenagers you've irresponsibly left unsupervised, and certain classifications of fruits and vegetables. And if you feel so moved, please give us a rating. Those always help. Thank you for listening.